If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. And the idea was we clip onto each other. I had the life raft clipped onto me from the aircraft. We're going to go to a wave, jump out at the top and then crash the aircraft into the water, which we knew would not end well. When I first spoke to David Key about being a guest on my podcast series, He'd tell me one amazing, incredible story after the other. Even David's workplace was incredible, having the best view from him an office that you can imagine. An office window high above the clouds, sometimes actually in the clouds, as an air crewman with the Victoria Police Air Wing. David and his crew rescued people on a daily basis, from raging fires, car accidents, boat mishaps, and people trapped in all sorts of situations. He's been winched into 100-foot waves, saving many swept overboard during the disastrous and fatal Sydney to Hobart yacht race of 1998. During that rescue, he nearly drowned himself, and there were also concerns that the chopper that he was in might run out of fuel. Now, 
I'm led to believe that there aren't too many servos in the middle of Bass Strait. Uh, I could be wrong. Um, He's been winched down into an area engulfed by the Black Saturday bushfires where he drove a woman, her dog Poncho, I thought that was a horse's name, but anyway, and her horse to safety with only the help of his team above in the chopper directing him because he couldn't see. I'm going to let David or Dave uh, tell us about the many individual bravery awards that he received and the group bravery awards the Air Wing crew received for both the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race and the Black Saturday bushfires because I couldn't do it justice. I'm pretty sure that you will be shaking your head in amazement at what this incredible man and his crew did on those days. One thing I know for sure is it'll give you goosebumps. I know you love the story of the rescue of John Campbell, a young American man who was close to drowning and the bond that David and his wife Vicky and the pilot Daryl and his wife now have with John's family. And, you know, David wasn't just physically strong, but he was also incredibly mentally strong and able to deal with these situations with very little long-term mental health issues. I don't know how that's possible. Well, let's have a chat to him and find out because I just don't get it. So welcome, Dave, and thanks for so much for um, being a guest on Narelle Fraser Interviews today. Hello, Narelle. How are you? I'm really good. I'm actually very excited about interviewing you today. You've been one of the people that I've held in such high esteem for years and years. So it's, um, yeah, a bit of a, oh, a dream come true is probably a bit strong, but um, I'm wrapped. So thank you. So Dave, can you tell us um, when and why and how did you join the Air Wing? Like, what is it that drew you to such a dangerous job? Was it the danger? No, not really. Uh, because I was just doing my time at general duties at uh, Sunshine and Broadmeadows. And so when I was in the army, I was in tanks. <coughs> in tanks, And sometimes we flew in helicopters, whether they'd be Chinooks, Iroquois, and things like that. And I had a bit of a fascination for it. So when the application came up to go to the air wing as a um, air observer or tactical flight officer, I put in for the job and I was lucky enough to get it. It's not that I was a daredevil, it's just that I thought that's a, another aspect of policing that, uh, that I would enjoy. So that was the, the main reason, because I'd spent 10 years in the regular army and 33 years in the Army Reserve. I did 33 years at VicPol, but 28 years at the police air wing. So I had a quite a bit of experience there. Uh, that's probably putting it very mildly. I cannot imagine what you must have seen and what you must have done over those, what was it, 28 years in the air wing? Yes. Yep. Yep. So I read somewhere that the chopper that you flew in, or uh, yeah, was a, what's it called, a Dauphin SA365. Now, that's pretty impressive, I think. Um, it sounds impressive. Um, but <laughs> it cruises at around, is that right, 230 KPH? That seems terribly yep. fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it is pretty fast. Like for example, if you had a paper Melways, uh, we would actually fly across the double page of a Melways in fifteen to twenty seconds. So 
everything in our job was sort of a fairly fast pace. Wow. Yeah. So this wasn't daredevil. It was just that was the job. Well, you say it wasn't a daredevil, but, yeah, it, I think to most of us it would be because everything you do is just um, like you, would you – uh, what's the word, patrol up in the air very often or are you generally just going to jobs? No, we do general patrolling uh, just all over the metro area, uh, country areas of Victoria. And then between that, we would be actually allocated tasks, whether it be a pursuit where we'd follow the car, look for a missing person, someone that's missing in the surf. So it's always various jobs. We're up in the air on a, say, a 10-hour shift for at least uh, six or seven hours. So it was a, a fairly big day. You know, I've only been up in a chopper a couple of times with the air wing, but I couldn't get over a couple of things. Number one, how loud it was, but number two is the smell of the fuel. Um, does that happen to you? Yes, yes. Because, uh, well, you're sitting on a couple of thousand litres of fuel, so it has a tendency to, to waft into the uh, the cabin area sometimes. Uh, you just get used to it. I suppose it's like anything. I suppose the, the more you're up there and um, breathing in that fuel, I suppose, as you say, you just get used to it. So, Dave, how did you deal with the mental challenges of what you did? And the reason I ask that, I think to myself, you must be um, – really so resilient, like extremely resilient. How did you do it? Um, that's a good question. The mental challenges, well, I didn't divide tasks uh, when I did them into a physical or mental aspect. It was just a task had to be accomplished. So you just put your, your thinking cap on and you apply yourself uh, to whatever challenge it was. It might be a small challenge or it might be a rather large one, but they, you approach them all the same and then when you finish that task, you're just ready to go on to the next one. So it was a constant move, movement all the time and, again, it comes back to training. And I suppose with the military training and then the police department, which was disciplined as well, you tend to be able or you are able to push everything into certain areas to get a task accomplished. It's not just a mishmash. It's well thought out and planned. So that's about all I could do apart from I had my Army Reserve time, which was a complete change from flying around in helicopters. I was out um, blowing things up and uh, in tanks. So that was quite a release as well. Plus I could do brief uh, with my wife, Vicky, who was a, a policewoman as well. So... That's how I sort of approach that. That makes any sense? It does. And you must be lucky to be or fortunate to be able to debrief with Vicky because when you say that, I think to myself, I wasn't able to debrief with many people because most of my friends, I had a lot of lovely friends in the job, but when I got home, I have um, a beautiful husband, but he I couldn't debrief with him because he couldn't bear um, the, the trauma and the, he just couldn't manage it. It used to upset him as well. So I used to think, why would I bring somebody into that? <laughs> so you must be very – and my sisters, my family, the same thing. So you must be very fortunate with Vicky to be able to do that. 
Uh, well, I suppose, yes, you are correct because, you know, being a policewoman, she was in the sex offences area and she was also a, a pilot. So she could understand what I was going through uh, quite well. And, of course, she has a few bad days as well. So we could bounce off each other. Someone that hasn't been through a situation doesn't understand or couldn't understand or would just pay at lip service. So if that makes sense as well, that, she, yeah, she did understand because if I was talking about, oh, we had to fly through a certain amount of cloud and this and that, well, she understood all that. So I suppose that helped a great deal in actually be able to debrief with her, not come home and dump on her yeah, yeah. Uh, as such, but just someone to talk to apart from the crew when we're involved in something. Unless another crew has actually done something like that, uh, they wouldn't understand so it's just like many many of your jobs in the CI. Was was there ever um, a a job which you didn't feel you could tell Vicky, like maybe because she'd worry about you or it may be too traumatic? Is there anything you can think of? No, not really. Just a lot of the air ambulance jobs I didn't talk about because they were pretty uh, pretty horrific because uh, working with the paramedics on the air ambulance as part of the crew, uh, there was a lot of things in there that uh, were pretty nasty that she didn't need to know about. Uh, but she was an old nurse as well. She used to be a nurse before she joined the police force. Goodness me, you've, you've, um, you've really landed. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what, what hasn't Vicky done? Let, let's cut to the chase. <laughs> What hasn't she done? That- she wants to go to the moon. That's another one of her little <laughs> bucket lists. But anyway, yeah, so. Well, off you go, Rich. So in that sense, uh, yes, yeah, so I suppose I did get the trifecta there, didn't I? Um, <laughs> yes. So there was a, a lot of things that she understood uh, that, you know, were, were what I was feeling and what was happening and things like that. So in that sense, I was lucky. Mm. And that's probably what has helped me with my um being able to, you know, switch off, mm. I suppose, mm. and um, all the mental challenges that come with all these jobs. And the other thing I did was also I kept up my hobbies. You said uh, you had a lot of other hobbies. What sort of things did you do when you couldn't talk to Vicky? Um, I, I'll just push bike riding, I'll, a lot of Army Reserve uh, horse riding. We both had horses. <laughs> Because one year I got a saddle for my birthday and a horse for Christmas. So I thought, well, there's a bit of a hint there. <laughs> I, think we're going, I think I'm going riding. <laughs> she already had a horse. She used to do three-day eventing. So she was very subtle. <laughs> that, that, that was – it was always something, something to do, you know, apart from normal sort of things around the yard. But I didn't like to dwell on things. That was sort of the self-discipline side of it, and I think that helped as well. And as Vicky said, I never had trouble sleeping, that I could always sleep on a barbed wire fence um, because no matter if it was a good day or bad day, I still slept like a log, probably a little bit slept more after a, a hard physical day, but uh, that was that's how we approached it. It was a, it was a dual thing as well. Uh, you know, because she sometimes had her issues and problems and uh, bad jobs she had to do. So we just sort of 
just look after each other. That was the basic thing. Mm, you're very fortunate. Um, Dave, for me um, and for the listeners, obviously, but how does somebody from the air wing like yourself, how are you connected or how do you um, become an air ambo as well? Are you both an air ambo um, up on up in the clouds? Like how does that work? Okay, because when you go to the air wing first, you do all your initial training uh, to work the police helicopter. And then once you've got all your qualifications up for that, uh, we then did our air ambulance training, which was ground school, uh, a lot of uh, medical um, bits and pieces. The idea was that uh, a crew in a helicopter was a pilot, a TFO and a uh, winch crewman or a rescue crewman. With the air ambulance, because of the weight, we could only take a pilot, a tactical flight officer, and one micro air ambulance officer. So we used to train the ambulance people up to be rescue crewmen, and they'd train us up to be paramedic assistants. So when we landed at a scene, uh, say at a car accident, there'd be police road crew there, there'd be uh, ambulance road crew, we would then take over and because we'd only get involved in major incidents or major accidents and things like that. So it was normally a fairly hectic scene and all the AMBOs looked to the um, paramedic, Micah paramedic, because of his extra training. Uh, So we had to be with him and assist him at all times. And a lot of the times the uh, poor old uh, uh, police on the ground uh, were sometimes a little bit overwhelmed with what they were presented with, uh, looked at me as, you know, oh, what do we do now type of thing. You know, a lot of them are only young people on the van. Uh, this might be their first or major incident they've been to and they're a little bit sort of uh, shell-shocked. So we sort of had a couple of roles there, but the main one was to assist the air ambulance uh, paramedic, uh, get to the patient, treat the patient, uh, get them out, stabilise them, into the helicopter, back to the Alfred or the Royal Melbourne, take them in, hand them over, and then we're off again uh, waiting for another job. So that's uh, both sides. So you obviously wear a number of hats um, yes. up in the chopper. You are not just um, an air crew. You are also um, a, a trained as a like a MICA paramedic. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. not, not as trained, but there to assist him with drawing up drugs, um, setting up equipment and uh, just passing him things that he needs because he's the one that's in the middle of the incident and then so are we. So we're, all the other police are basically on the outside uh, looking in, CFA, SES and things like that. Uh, it's only the select few that sort of are, are right in the scene itself. So there's no, no time to attach yourself or get thinking about what about this, what about that. It was task at hand, get the person out, get them back to the hospital, and then they're gone. Talking about mental challenges, um, so how did you manage that adrenaline rush that we as police and first responders, I suppose, we often talk about that, like when you get, you go into a job that's um, very serious, the adrenaline starts pumping and it's... uh, it's just something that happens. Uh, did you have that adrenaline rush? And if so, how did you manage it? Uh, no, I don't think I ever had an adrenaline rush because um, 
not ev- not everything's a rescue that we did. It could be your searching, or it could be out doing training, uh, searching for missing people, things like that. But you managed to, or I managed to be able to control that because that's all part of the training. And because if you have that adrenaline rush, that drops your capacity to complete the task. Um, where some things are uh, sort of methodical, other things are very, very quickly impacted on you. So you have to learn to to um, paddle underwater and look calm on the top because don't forget a lot of people are looking at you to get them out of a situation. So you've got to think fast and have plan A, B, C and D all the time. So that's not going to work, but go to that one, go to the next one. And just you have to remain calm because it's no use you being the person that's helping someone's in an absolute flap because that doesn't help the situation at all. Um, so you you would have seen that at a lot of your jobs in the homicide, uh, that you would have had to do the same, settle yourself down because people are looking at you. So that's, that's, that's how I did it. So... I don't think it's adrenaline, um, but I tried to use that as an advantage of not to yep. zap my strength out too early. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, no pressure. So, Dave, how do you teach yourself not to get all fired up for a job and to remain calm, as you say you you try to be? <laughs> uh, well, I try. <laughs> uh, first of all, it's, it gets back to training. Uh, we do did a lot of training at the Air Wing for different situations to hopefully prepare us uh, for those tasks to be able to remain calm. And don't forget you're working as a crew. The three of you are working as a crew and the three of you have to be on the same page and it's it's the teamwork that gets you through and you have to remain focused. Uh, like you're given a task, uh, you assess the task, you know, that where you're going, say it's into the high country, well, there's trees and things up there, so you've got to take that into account. You have a briefing with the crew, and then, as you know, you're given a task, but once you arrive at a task, it's completely different to what you've been told. So you have to keep reassessing it and adjusting for risks because that's the last thing you need is um, for us to fall out of the sky. And then you keep making fine adjustments uh, until you complete the task. Uh, But if all rescues aren't the same, all car crashes aren't the same. So there's always variables, whether it's daytime, nighttime, country, metro, weather conditions. And again, it's back to this plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. And in some cases, we did abort rescues um, because they were just too dangerous to the crew and the aircraft, and to the person that had to be rescued. So you have to think of other ways to extract them uh, or get them out of the situation. So you just have to keep calm and thinking. That's the the biggest thing, if that helps. Yeah. So when you talk about um, you just have to train, what do you actually do? Are you putting those positions in training? Are you always uh, repelling? Uh, are you always, um, I don't know, trying to get into a car, um, trying to administer medications? How do you train to be like that? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's that's a very good question. You do drills and procedures and certain things are done uh, certain ways 
for example, when you see us flying around to do a rescue, uh, there's always things happening in the aircraft that make sure that you're okay for the next step and the next step. And that's part of the brief briefings, part of it, and also emergencies. Like in the city to Hobart, we talked about an emergency. Well, it had happened and it never happened before, but we trained for it and we talked about it. And that's what we try and do because I was also in the training cell at the air wing. So we'd always be coming up with new scenarios for the junior members coming through and doing their training just to try and prepare them because a lot of us had, had been through good good uh, times and bad times doing rescues and it's just a – so it doesn't bite them on the bum. So they're, they're not caught out. So you continue doing training, whether it's fast roping with the special operations group, uh, winching with the water police on boats and working with different other specialist groups as well just to keep us – keep your, your – abilities in your skills up to level. Same as the ambulance. We used to go every two months and do a one-day refresher course on drugs, new procedures that they use. Um, One of them was we now carried blood in the air ambulance, which we didn't before. So there was protocols around that. So it was just a continual training, working, training, working, and that's what, what it was all about. Uh, I hope that helps answer the question. <laughs> it certainly does. Uh, so, Dave, in the intro, we did talk about uh, the Sydney to Hobart and the Black Saturday bushfires, and it's clear that you've got so much experience with both of them. So I thought maybe we might start off with the Sydney to Hobart yacht race and we will get to the bushfires, but can you tell us about your involvement in that tragic race? Yes, I uh, certainly can. Like uh, most of us, we watched it start at Boxing Day uh, from Sydney Harbour, and uh, I was working the next day, and we are just about to knock off at 4 o'clock, and we got a call from an Australian search and rescue in Canberra, and they said, can you duck out into Bass Strait? We've got a couple of emergency beacons going off. We thought, yep, no worries, because we're the tier one response for Australian search and rescue. But as we started to go down to uh, Mallacoota, we were getting reports that there was more emergency beacons going off and that the Sydney to Hobart yacht race was being smashed by some wild weather. So... Again, we brief all the way down because we had the crew. Had Daryl Jones was the pilot, and the winch operator for this was uh, Barry Barclay, and I was the rescue crewman. So we kept in contact with um, OSAR, it's called Australian Search and Rescue, and they were saying now there's about 18 beacons going off out in Bass Strait. And we thought we were getting into a bit of bad weather when, as you said before, the top speed of our aircraft was 230 kilometres an hour. We were had 420 on the speedo. So we thought, uh, that's double our speed. So we thought, there's a bit of wind. So we, we landed at Mallacoota and we refuelled. And while we were refuelling, um, we, they said, oh, if you can go out and back up uh, another helicopter that had come down from um, Latrobe Valley, Helimed 1, uh, because they're rescuing people off a yacht 
can you get the rest of the people off the yacht? So I went, no problems. So as we um, went out into Bass Strait, we were heading towards the yacht. Uh, they'd got five people off. There was four people left on it, so we were going to rescue them. And then we got a phone call to say, uh, cancel that one and go to the Winston Churchill, the yacht that had sunk, or the um, one of the communication vessels, and there was people in life rafts. So we were diverting to that, and then they said, no, there's a fellow that's just been washed off a vessel called Kingara, and could you go and see if you can find him? So as we went out there, at this stage we're about 120 kilometres offshore and in fairly wild weather, but we'd only been told it was a um, like a storm, storm warning. But we found out later it was actually a cyclone, So, but we didn't know that at the time. So we went out there, uh, we spotted the vessel and we started to head towards the vessel that was just going up and down in the waves, uh, that all of them were pointing over the back of the boat. And because I was in the door at that stage, because um, I was the rescue crewman for that day and in all my equipment. And as the pilot turned the aircraft, it just blew us backwards. And I guarantee we went about a, probably a kilometre behind the boat before the pilot could, as we call it, pick up the aircraft and stop it and turn into the wind. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't believe it. We were right over the fellow that had been washed off, John Campbell, the American. Uh, so that was just – you couldn't see the, the water was just a washing machine. So we uh, remained overhead because the idea is you get wished out the door, down to the person in the water, hook them up and bring them up to the aircraft. Easy. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Dead right. So the pilot started uh, – we'd already talked about – the rescues and what we're going to do and the emergencies. And one of the emergencies in the aircraft is if the winch freezes. Now, if the winch freezes, you try and recycle it, circuit breakers. If not, you actually have to get cut off the wire because you can't get back into the aircraft. And we discussed that, that if the winch froze when I was on it, they'd fly to the front of the, the yacht and cut the wire so hopefully I could get sort of washed back to the yacht. So these are the things you talk about, but you never want to happen. No. So uh, the pilot was at, at 100 feet, and we have a thing called the Doppler radar under the aircraft, which sends out two beams, which measures the distance from the mass that's under the aircraft to the belly. Well, the uh, needle was indicating 100 and then went to 10. So that meant that the waves were 90 feet. So that's how we could confirm that. So we thought, uh, got a big day at the office here. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't even laugh. Oh, my goodness. That is a big day at the office day. <laughs> yeah. So poor old Daryl was really struggling. Normally you do zero speed when you overhead a survivor to rescue them. He was actually doing 160 kilometres forward speed in the helicopter to maintain the stationary position. So that's how, how wild it was. We'd all discussed it, whether we were going to do the rescue, and we all said yes. So out the door I went and started to get winched down. Normally you look up when you're checking everything and you see the belly of the helicopter. Well, I looked up and I saw the tail of the helicopter. So I thought, that's not good. 
That's not supposed to happen. So I went into the water and I looked up and there's this great 90-foot wall of water in front of me. They were actually like surf breaker waves because they were breaking at the top. So I thought, okay, and I couldn't hear the helicopter and I couldn't see it and I couldn't see the fellow I was rescuing and I was just getting tumbled around. Well, what they were doing, I found out later, that they were trawling me through the water back to the fellow that was I was to rescue. So I was probably 30 foot behind the aircraft. So they were just winching in. So I was getting dragged through the water and into the wave. Now, the thing is you're on the surface of the water in a cyclone and it's noisy and you're just getting thrown around and next second you get dragged into the middle of a wave and it's black and it's dead quiet. So that's something that doesn't normally happen either. So I'm holding my breath, holding my breath, going, this is not good. And then I popped out the back of the wave, fell down, managed to orientate myself and looked up and saw another wave. So I thought, here we go again. So I was getting dragged uh, into the wave again. Well, this stage, it was a little bit longer, starting to run out of air. And I thought, well, um, I must have set my emergency beacon off and inflate my life jacket because it's much easier to find a body um, with a beacon going off and floating in the surface. And I popped out of the wave. When I fell out of the wave and surfaced again, about, well, I suppose, a good 10 feet from me, was John Campbell, the fellow I had to rescue. And I was just looking at this bloodless sort of face. And, of course, he'd, I found out later he'd actually hit the compass on the vessel when he was being washed off and it's smashed in all the side of his face, his eye socket, his cheek and all the rest of it. Oh, yeah. So when I, when I finally reached him, he was, he was just about gone. He was, um, didn't have very long to go at all. So I grabbed him and he just felt like a, an eel, just a wet, cold eel. And all he had on was a pair of long johns and yet he'd been washed overboard in full yachting equipment. So how he'd lost all that uh, is, is another story. So I grabbed him. We were just getting thrown around. We got dragged. Uh, the water was crashing over us. I hooked him up. I still hadn't heard the helicopter because of the, the noise. So I gave the indicator to get winched up. Uh, so I had a hold of him and I was just sort of patting him on the shoulder because he was um, just out of it really. Mm-hmm. And we're getting winched up. And I suppose we're about oh, seven, eight foot from the aircraft. The winch stopped. Mm. It had frozen. Oh, my God. So here I am, <laughs> dangling above the waves, uh, 120 k's offshore, and bugger. <laughs> you know? And I could see Barry looking inside, looking outside. And oh, as I found out later, they were really going through all their emergency procedures to get the power back to the winch. Yeah, because what had happened is the salt water uh, from the wind had actually got in and shorted the control panel underneath the aircraft in the belly. And so, the first thing to do was to cause try and fly me to the front of the yacht and cut me off because couldn't get back into the aircraft. So Barry let out, and I gave him the the, the sort of signal that I was going to push Campbell up. So as I pushed him up, he let out the full of extent of his safety strap, uh, which was a very gutsy effort on his part because he could have fallen out yeah, as yeah. well. 
Yeah. I pushed Campbell up. He grabbed him under the arms, then grabbed his long johns and gave him the biggest wedgie you have ever seen <laughs> and dragged him up into the aircraft. That would be so, a very welcome wedgie if there ever was one, yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. So I'm, so I'm still – he couldn't reach me, so I'm still dangling below the aircraft expecting um, – to see the front of the boat get cut off and hopefully get washed back to the boat and get on the boat anyway, so at least I'd have something. Because they couldn't fly back with me hanging out because I just would have got hypothermia and uh, they couldn't have got any speed up. Uh, and then all of a sudden the power came back on the winch. Well, there is a, drills and procedures to get into the aircraft. Uh, I think I just dived straight through the door. Get <laughs> uh, <laughs> back inside. <laughs> So, uh, oh, God. so anyway, away we go. We turn the aircraft, and you can see them all chapping and clear and clapping and cheering on the on the yacht. Oh. And uh, and away we went. We started to head back to Malakuta because we'd flown out so quickly because we had the tailwind. We now had the headwind. So instead of doing two hundred and thirty, we were probably doing fifteen to thirty k's an hour. <gasps> wow. Now, what that does is the engine's at full power. Mm. Uh, your time and your fuel gauge needles aren't supposed to overlap each other. They did, which meant that we weren't going to make it back to shore. So we're laying on the in the back, both of us, Barry and I, cuddling um, John Campbell because of his hypothermia uh, to try and warm him up a little bit. And as he told us later, because he'd come to, all he could see was either me go up and talk to Daryl uh, and then come back and then Barry would go up and talk to Daryl. And what we were doing, we were confirming the gauges and, no, we won't have enough fuel to get back. Mm. So we went into our emergency procedures again, right, what we're going to do. And the idea was we clip onto each other. I had the life raft clipped onto me from the aircraft. Uh, We were going to go to a wave, jump out at the top, Daryl was going to go forward and then crash the aircraft into the water, um, which we knew would not end well, and we all knew that. But that's the type of you just got to do do the job the best you can at the time. So it was just the case of look at each other, right? We'll see how we go. While we were doing this, we had a Beechcraft aircraft because we were below the clouds. As we were flying back in, the Beechcraft was above them and he had radio comms with us, so he knew what was happening. The trouble was there was no fuel at Malakuta now, so no other rescue helicopters could come out to get us if we'd crashed. So that's a bit of an issue. There's a number of issues going on here, Dave. Mm. <laughs> just a, just another, another bad day at the office. <laughs> so we... As we're flying, I think we're still a fair way offshore. We're still in the cyclone, and the first fuel warning light came on, and that's a terrible sound. It's a buzzing sound was, and to let you know that oh, I'm just about to run out of fuel and stop. So we kept going, and we were still, uh, I suppose, 15 k's offshore, and we thought, all right, it looks like we, we, get, we, we had talked about it about three times, and we were at the door prepared to go. So that's how close it was. We were just about ready to jump. When you wouldn't believe it, we hit the edge of the cyclone 
and the water was calm. There was still the wind, but it was blowing some, for some reason in the opposite direction. So Daryl used his skill as the second engine warning light came on, or fuel warning light, to say that I'm just about to stop as well. And it, we just took off like a, like a shot. You wouldn't believe how quick, because we were empty, and the wind just took this empty shell of a helicopter back towards Malakuta. Well, both of these indicators are buzzing and flashing, saying we're, we've got about three minutes worth of fuel left. Uh, are we going to make it? Daryl said, I think we will, I think we will. Sounded like Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> and we, uh, we were going to land on the beach, crash land on the beach basically because we thought, oh, we hopefully have enough speed in the rotors to, to make it to the shore. Uh, Daryl said, no, I think we can get over the cliff and make it onto the oval at Malakuta. No. And I thought, oh, well, if we have to do a forced landing, we could, at least we've got land. Yeah. Well, as we came over the edge of the cliff, uh, just missing the trees, yeah. of course, it's summertime down there. The place is, the oval's full of kids playing <laughs> cricket and and we're going, oh, jings, any cricket. <laughs> well, you know, there's nothing much we can do. Oh, we can't fly much further. Yeah. So the pilot actually, he tilted the blades so it makes it just a, a hell of a racket. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think people could sort of say, oh, I think they want to land. Yeah. And it was it was like Moses and the Red Sea. We're just part of the oval. <laughs> yeah, I uh, And then, bang, uh, down we came and we landed. And the lights are blinking and the engines are sort of going, okay, now we, now we really we really want to shut down. So we shut the engines down, got out of the aircraft, the three of us, and we just stood there beside the helicopter looking at each other, realising what we'd just been through. And then there was a little tap on the inside of the window of the helicopter and it was John Campbell saying, can I come out? <laughs> but at that stage, we still didn't know his name. Wow. So the a- ambulance rocked up and a-, and a few ground crew from the police and we take him out, throw him in there, and he's gone. So that was our, our little role. And at that stage, when I was being sent down there at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I rang Vic up and said, oh, I've just got to duck out into Bass Strait. <laughs> uh, I probably won't be home for tea. Well, she didn't have a clue what was happening until she watched the news that night and saw me on the news. And she goes, ah, that's where he is. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, it just, it's just incredible. And uh, we still didn't even know who he was because that was, that was like a lot of our jobs. We go rescue someone in the helicopter, bang, and they've gone and we're, we're left alone. So we went to the um, – Malakuta Police Station. Oh, first of all, we had a the girls at the um, Country Women's Association down in Malakuta were absolutely fantastic. Uh, they had the oh no, they were they were I could have run around and kissed a lot of them. And uh, because I was saturated, uh, you know, I was still in my wetsuit. Um, I went into the uh, change rooms there, had a shower, and they had a pair of tracksuit pants and a wind shooter for me uh, to put on because oh. uh, they reckon I look like a drowned rat. <laughs> so got a cup of tea and yeah. a sandwich. Yeah. And they were just, and the local shopkeepers down there were fantastic because they were just providing stuff because all the helicopter crews were coming in, dumping people off, refueling and going back out again. You know, it was just a, a procession. So the girls there were absolutely terrific uh, and we were absolutely exhausted. 
because uh, Daryl was just fighting the aircraft so much that he was cramping up something incredible. And, uh, you know, because I was full of salt water, so that didn't help. So we went to a debrief uh, at the Malakuta Police Station, um, and the sergeant and the water police was there, and he was terrific. Because there was no accommodation, uh, here's a can of Coke and a bit of pizza, here's a sleeping bag, here's the floor of the police station. So we were sleeping on the, on the on the police station floor because it was night time then, so there was no other helicopters out there, so everybody was just stood down. Um, at 5.30 the next morning, um, we were woken up and said, back out, we've got some more rescues for you. So we stayed at our same positions. You know, Daryl was flying, Barry was the winch operator because we knew what to expect now of the, the water conditions and things like that. So we had to go out to a yacht called Midnight Special. The crew from um, Canberra in um, their helicopter had rescued uh, four or five of the crew and we were to go out and rescue the other four that were left on the on the vessel. Uh, so again, full briefings, discussions, emergencies, plan A, B, C and D. So we were all prepared. So we got there and not knowing... In the water were all the sails and the ropes trailing behind the aircraft. And it was about a 70-foot swell that day. So it was too dangerous to put me on, to try and put me onto the vessel because uh, we had talked to the other rescue helicopter and they said they got the blokes to jump into the water and uh, go down and then go into the water, rescue them, take them up to the chopper. So we had a... Had a fly around, but I, what I couldn't believe were the sleeping bags in the water. There was no mast, uh, there was no roof on this uh, yacht, and uh, we thought, oh, why all the sleeping bags? I'll tell you that in a minute. But uh, we talked about it, and I said, well, put me well behind all the rope because that's the last thing I needed was to get tangled up into the rope that was trailing behind the yacht. So I went into the water. And the, the idea that we talked about was when the yacht's going up the wave for the, one of them to jump off and then come down the swell to me, I'd get them, hook them up and take them up to the helicopter. So that was good. So there was all these you know, four blokes sitting on this yacht uh, into the water, got the first fella, no dramas, took him up, um, kicked him out or kicked him into the machine. I went back down. Um, ready for the second fellow, I signalled for him to jump in and he jumped in and came down to me uh, with a little bit of a, a problem there because he was a little bit panicky, so I had to sort of settle him down a, a, a bit. Got him hooked up and he was yelling at me, I've, no, I've never been so glad to see a copper in all my life. <laughs> I'm hearing him. That's <laughs> <laughs> just the way he said it. Yeah, and, of course, yeah. um, I get him up to the helicopter. Now, I'm starting to get a little bit tired at this stage, but went down, got the third fella, uh, came back up, and, of course, they're just laying on the floor and, and they're vomiting, and then I'm starting to vomit, uh, dry reaching, and Daryl said, I've got to go for a bit of a fly because I'm cramping because he was trying to hold the helicopter still. So, and da- and then Barry said the same thing. He said, "Yeah, I'm cramping as well because the position he was in at the door." Uh, so we flew off into the sea mist. 
uh, to do a circuit so everybody could sort of just shake themselves out and prepare themselves. And I found out later, but as we came around, I went down into the water and I beckoned the last fellow to jump off. Well, he he didn't jump off. He's just looking at me. And I thought, oh, like the thousand-yard stare. Yeah, yeah, panicking sort of. Yeah, and anyway, all of a sudden he sort of snapped, saw me sort of waving for him to come. He jumped in. He came down to me. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And all he could do was kiss me on the cheek. And I said, what is it with yachties? It's like Tony Bullimore, you know. And all I wanted to do was kiss you. Well, anyway, he was just so glad. Well, as we were being winched up to the helicopter, 
uh, I was looking up and down at the same time, you know, just making sure everything was safe. The yacht sank. <gasps> so I tapped this bloke on the shoulder and pointed <gasps> as the yacht was sinking, and he was the skipper. He thought we'd rescued everybody and we had flown off, and he was going to go down with his, his uh, yacht. Right. Now, that's, that's pretty gutsy, isn't it? Yeah. No, he resigned himself to the fact that he was, he was going to go. Anyway, so I got there, my little band of merry men on the helicopter, and <laughs> by that stage we're all laughing, and I said, what's all the sleeping bags in the water? And the fellow, uh, one of the fellows said, oh, we were trying to block the holes up where the windows are because they've been smashed to stop the thing from sinking because we're bailing it out. And the, the one that said, I'm never been so glad to see a copper, he said, when we got rolled over, because of the, the waves, a lot of them were dismasted and de-keeled, so they were just bobbing around like corks. So he said, when we rolled over and finally came upright again, the, the inside was full of water. He was inside, but the kettle floated, floated past him, so he put the kettle back on the stove. <laughs> You said they're going, okay, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so, uh, and that was the uh, – <laughs> so that was that one. And then we took them back in and we had enough fuel to get back to Malakuta Airport for that one, so they got taken away. One of the fellows had lost the tips of his fingers in a, in a hatch had, had smashed them. And – when we did the uh, inquest up in Sydney for the Sydney to Harbour, Daryl and I were the only two air crew that were called to give evidence. And the reason being was to verify the height of the waves because no one would believe any of the oddies or us that the waves could not get that high. Um, and also any recommendations, if this happened again, to assist rescuers. Like... Uh, one of the helicopters got, helicopters got hit underneath by a flare. Another one uh, actually fired the flare through his yacht, out down through the top because he didn't know how to use it. The fellows from the um, one of the vessels didn't know how to use their life raft. And when we took the life vests off, our fellows from the Midnight Special, a tag on the inside said, don't use in rough water. <laughs> I doubt that they would have been reading that at the time, though, Dave, but they should have known it, obviously. No. <laughs> no. But obviously what you're saying is that they needed, that they should have been very well versed in how to use those before the situation happened. Yes, they were, they were Queensland yachties, and I actually went up there and visited them um, a couple of years later and gave a talk to their yacht club, and they said, oh, we've got a new yacht. Do you want to come out sailing with us? And Vicky said, well, you haven't got a good record at the moment. <laughs> Did you say yes or <laughs> and <they> no? Went, <laughs> yeah, of course we said yes. Of course you would. But what yes. I did on – one of them had their daughter on board and their life raft was downstairs because of the um, lines all over the top of the these yachts, the life raft gets in the way. So the life raft was downstairs and I just brought them back to a bit more of a reality – I said to the daughter, right, put one hand behind your back because you've just been rolled over and you've got a broken arm. I want you to bring that life raft up the stairs and put it up on the deck. And she couldn't do it. And they went, ah, I think we better change that. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, there's a lot, of, a lot of things came out of it and it was very interesting. So that, that's my 
And the reason we were called up to the inquest in Sydney was because we were there from the start to the finish. You know, there was um, probably six or seven helicopters doing rescues and Navy vessels and uh, Navy uh, helicopters and things like that. But because we were there from the very start, like we were out to do it and the last ones to basically leave. So because we, we control search and rescue for Victoria, so that's why Osar said, no, you, you stay there. So there you go. That's our uh, our travelled our, our travels for the day, and then because when we flew back to to um, Essendon, uh, you talk about you know getting apart from us debriefing ourselves was getting debriefed from our organisation. Well, all this we got was why did you nearly run out of fuel? We were sort of not victimised, but uh, yeah, not made feel good. Now, now I'm shaking my head in anger that that's the only thing that Vicpol can actually ask you is about your fuel. Like there are, <laughs> yeah, I'm oh, sorry, I am, oh, I'm lost for words. Um, there are hun- literally hundreds of questions that I can ask you about that amazing uh, half hour that you've just told us about. So I'm going to probably pick three or four, but there's just so many. Um, The first thing is you talked at the start about getting a phone call. Can you, pardon my ignorance, but can you actually get a phone call in a chopper? Yes. Right. What, you just ring (laughs) The chopper and there you are, you know, yeah? Yeah, yeah, we've got a number. We've got a number for the helicopter. So apart from all the radio communications, so we just got the phone call from uh, the fella up in Canberra. Um, Do you mind popping out in the bass stroke? We've got a couple of uh, what they're called EPIRBs, emergency locator beacons going off, which that's our job as well. Um, So we said, yeah, no worries. Then it just got worse and worse from there because no one was getting any information back. In relation to the what what was happening out there, because a lot of the vessels were being overturned, and of course all their radio comms are gone. So it was only only two vessels at the front, which was Sayonara and I forget the other one. Uh, the, the cyclone came in behind them, but they just thought it was dark clouds and all the rest of it. And it hit Wilson's Prom, went up and went out at Malakuta, which got the rest of the fleet. Some kept going, some turned to go to Malakuta, some went out to sea, some turned backwards, every one of them got smashed. So, yeah, it's just uh, – and it, it actually turned out to be two cyclones. That's what was making the waves stand up. So normally it's just like a big swell if you, and choppy water, but these were making the waves actually stand up as is like surf breakers, and that was the issue. That's why so many yachts uh, – were sunk, and um, that's why so many people got into trouble. I just love the language that um, you're using, um, that the people are asking, you know, you, you get the phone call in the chopper, would you mind just popping out into Bass Strait? Like it's like just, as you said, just another day in the office, just pop out there. Um, I also find it interesting that there was a storm warning and not a cyclone warning. That there seems to be an enormous difference. Where was the issue there? Okay, well, in 
a below Scoffs Harbour. Uh, it's called a storm warning for, for bad weather. Yep. Above that, it's called a cyclone because you don't get cyclones down here. Right. You see? You get in the Beaufort scale, it's about a 10 or whatever it is. Well, mo- all the y- people I'd spoken to, well, their Beaufort scales just broke. So it had gone past a severe, a severe weather warning. That's all they had for us down here. And that's for the same as the yachts. It's just a severe weather warning because there was no wording for you're, you're in a cyclone. So there's a lot of it came out up at the inquest. Um, do you want me to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, feel free. Yes, please. Okay. Uh, we got interviewed by New South Wales detectives uh, for our statements uh, on the Sydney to Hobart. They came down and interviewed the other crews. Well, then we got a, a message from them, you two are required up at the inquest uh, because they want your, you know, your take on everything. And so we said, yep, righto. So Vic Paul flew us up there. Daryl and I went up and we went in the day before that we were due to give our evidence. We went in on the Wednesday just to listen and get the feel of how things were going in there. Well, we walk in, there was everybody from our side and then there was people representing the six deceased and they all had QCs. So we thought, let's enter it because they want to blame someone. Someone's at fault for these people dying. And, of course, this is what the inquest was all about. When we gave our statement, we were giving it, and they were really interested in the Doppler radar, that how we could measure the height of the waves, and the injuries people had, the lack of equipment or lack of um, assistance that we could give because we had some shortfalls as well, which is, have been rectified, because we'd never done anything like this. Yeah, yeah. A lot of this was the first for us, and it was first for a lot of other rescue crews. So there was a lot to be learnt um, on both sides. But we did our bit. Um, when we got up there, got introduced to everybody, and we were listening to the evidence, and they had a um, skipper from one of the vessels, and he was giving his evidence because one of the fellows had, had been washed over and died of uh, his vessel. And, of course, the QCs are going, well, why did you keep going? He said, well, we couldn't do anything else. But then they said, well, how could you tell the waves were so big? Because he was saying there were 80, 90-foot waves. And they go, that's impossible. They, the waves don't get like that because Bass Strait just doesn't ha- that doesn't happen. No, yeah. Right? <laughs> so... You know how if you give evidence, you look at the the magistrate or you look at the the coroner and you give your answer? Yes. Well, this bloke spun round, looked straight at the QC and said, listen, mate. (laughs) He said, that was just just so incredible. I'm watching the the coroner. He's (laughs) looking over the top of his glasses and he goes, listen, mate, my yacht had an 85-foot mast from the deck to the top. The waves were crashing over the mast. What part of that don't you get? <laughs> and, and then the coroner, the coroner goes, oh, could you look back at me now? <laughs> so that was quite good. Then when Daryl got up, because Daryl got up first on the Thursday, gave his evidence, and he was talking about the Doppler radar of how he could measure the height of the waves. And we'd taken up the certificate to say that the Doppler radar was 
you know, like you do with radars, right? radar guns when you're on the road, to certify it, say it was certified and it was working and it was accurate. So that was the main thing. So, yes, there's the documentation to, to back up because, you know, nothing's recorded. So just to, to back that up. And Daryl saying, well, I was hovering at 100 feet and the needle would go to 10. So that means whatever's underneath me has come up to 10 feet under the aircraft. So that's 90 foot. Oh, and they've all gone, right, okay, well, let's verify that. <laughs> we'll go on to the next bit. Well, anyway, he, he, and this is the, the this made the front page of the Herald Sun the next day. One of the QCs asked, well, who are your crew? Yup, yup, what, and what was their role? You know, I don't know what they were trying to get at and how much experience that they had. I could see where they were going with that one. Yes. But, like, we didn't know how to do a job. Well, I'd been there for 20-odd 20, 20 years, so – and the other bloke had been there for about 15. Oh, okay, right, okay, that takes you with that. But Daryl couldn't remember what my role was, <laughs> and it's rescue crewman. Yep. He called me, oh, the tea bag. <laughs> <laughs> that is so destructive. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so he, he just couldn't remember. So he said, oh, oh Dave was the tea bag. <laughs> yeah. Dipped in there out of the water. I'll never be able to have a cup of tea again without thinking about you. <laughs> well, I still get called call that now at my Army Reserve Unit. Last oh, tea bag. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I, I'm giving my evidence, and what they were interested in was, you know, the weather conditions um, and what issues um, that I could see with the vessels. Well, a lot of them is. Because we were in a violent storm, it was the water was white, you know, white caps and just foam and white. What colour do you reckon all the yachts were? They're white. Mm. White. Mm. They're white. Ha-ha. Righto. Um, first aid training, because the fellow that lost his fingers, the tops of his fingers, no one knew first aid on the vessel. They just wrapped a T-shirt around it. So um, life raft training, flare training. So that's what they wanted to try and get across was – that needed to be done. Plus, some of the equipment that had been used had not been Australian certified. Okay. So, you know, it was just cheap Chinese stuff, which caused, didn't hold up. So that was an issue. Well, anyway, so we're giving our evidence, and I've, I've given mine. I'm being cross-examined and all the rest of it, and then the, the coroner goes, oh, about time we had a break. So, you know, we I go back to the table where all our people are, the detectives and... Our QCs and the clerk of courts comes running out and he points to Daryl and I said, You two follow me. Coroner wants to see you. And you can hear a pin drop. Everyone's just looking at us and the QCs are going, Uh oh. The copper's going, You're going to die. Because <laughs> we thought, Oh, crap, what have we done wrong? We've just given our evidence. Well, anyway, the funny part was we go into the office, we're looking for trap doors and all sorts of things. <laughs> And uh, we sit down and the coroner's got little horn room glasses on and he looks over the top and he said, uh, you two want a cup of tea or coffee? You know, from this very serious man. I said, oh, oh a cup of tea. And he presses his buzzer and his um, clerk of course comes in. He says, oh, I'll have a coffee. These two will have a cup of tea and we'll have the good biscuits today, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh. and, he, and the whole crux of it, he says, what made you two, you know, or three basically, go out 
and do what you did. And they said, well, that's our job. And we thought we could do it, so we had to give it a go. And his comment back was, well, that's the Australian way, isn't it? And you go, oh, you know, because um, we thought we were in trouble because you don't get called in like that. And he said, no, she said, I've been a coroner for a long time. And he said, that was just absolutely incredible what you two have said. You know, hearing it from the Yachties, from their perspective, but f- from what we had done, um, and because our, our statements were quite thick, and he goes, well, that, that's just incredible. Thank you very much, fellas. And I thought, oh, that's, that's nice, isn't it? So, and, and, you know, Dave, I'm thinking to myself, the minute you said straight after your evidence the coroner wanted to see you, I never, ever thought, I don't know what the story was, but I never thought that he was, you know, that, oh, you're in trouble. I thought I would want to do the same thing. In fact, I would want to give you a big hug and another kiss on the cheek um, <laughs> to say thank you because, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised at all that that's how the coroner was affected. Not one idea. It was. It, mm. it was mm. terrific because even the, the you know, the, one of the water police coppers um, that came down and did our statements and that because he had to go around and take a lot of statements and, of course, there wasn't that many rescuers from down in Victoria apart from the Helimed crew uh, and ourselves. And they just said, you know, you, you blokes are nuts. I said, well, you go out in rough water and – you know, out into the ocean to rescue people. He said, yeah, yeah, but that's different. And well, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, that's your job. Yeah, it is. And it is different. You do it to your best ability. You do it to the best of your ability. And your ability is, uh, yeah, unbe- unbelievable. Um, can I go back a little bit, if you wouldn't mind? Can I ask you a couple of questions? Go for it. The equipment that you said uh, that you had on as the uh, tea bag. <laughs> um, yep. <laughs> what do you wear as a tea bag? What is your equipment? Okay. Equipment is um, a wetsuit, uh, flippers, gloves, helmet, then the uh, life vest, uh, which is rather bulky with all the emergency beacon and flares and all sorts of stuff. It's a survival vest as well. Uh, and then uh, the rescue harness to actually put on the survivor. And then all the winch wire that's in the water dragging you down. And you're looking at quite a few kilos to try and keep afloat, So as well as yourself. So that's why you get fatigued very quickly and the adrenaline cuts that down even more. So you have to be as controlled as possible. Now, the things that came out of that was because I was stuck in the waves, I had no oxygen. We now have um, heads bottles um, for ditching in the helicopter and for underwater work Okay, yeah. uh, for our own survival. So at least we've got oxygen. Now, what I did find is I had a, a very large pair of flippers on and we noticed one of the other crews had small flippers for their rescue crewmen. What it was is it takes more energy to power the large flippers, which zaps your energy, than it does the little ones. So we've got new flippers, we've got better wetsuits, uh, better survival vests. So we had managed with what we had. So, But now this was we now need this. There was a bit of kickback from the department to start with, but uh, we soon changed their mind on that one. Because it was quite a fair bit please of money. Please tell me it wasn't because of cost. Correct. <laughs> I said, please don't tell me that. 
Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah, cost because it's oh, life rafts was another thing. Uh, we only had a couple of life rafts, but none for training. So if you go out and deploy a life raft, you haven't done training on it. And they're about four and a half, five thousand dollars each. But we got one for training, which we used to do our survival training at the academy pool. So know how to inflate it, know how to get into it, know how to ride it, uh, know how to use the equipment in it. Just and again at the pool, we'd also use the heads. So you jump in the water and you go under and you take the heads out, put the mouthpiece in, clear it, and um, just manage yourself. Try and breathe because you've got about two minutes worth of air. So you've got to try and conserve that. So you just don't know. And because we do a lot of water rescues, rivers, bay, oceans, you just don't know what you're going to come up against. Oh, I'm, yeah, cost, seriously. Um, <laughs> now, you also said, I find this unbelievable, but I, I believe you, but whenever we hear choppers, any of us, you cannot hear anything else but the chopper. They are so loud and obviously the closer mm-hmm. they get, the louder they get. Now, for you to be in the water and not be able to hear the chopper says to me just how loud it must have been. That is almost unbelievable. You hear people use the expression, it sounds like a, a, a jumbo jet when they're in a cyclone. That's exactly what it sounds like or a train or a locomotive. Or something. It's just this roar of noise. And that's what I mean about one minute, one second I'm out in the roar and in the daylight and next second I'm in a, the black of a wave and dead silence. Yeah. And uh, not, knowing where, not knowing where I was, whether the helicopter was still, even still there. So, but you just, I just had to keep going because I had the task to do. And my task was to rescue the poor black in the water. Um. You talked about the uh, water had short-circuited uh, the winch, whatever it was. Uh, I bet you that wasn't in your um, uh, your safety procedures when you were practising. Uh, no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that is, you cannot imagine that, can you? No, but what we do when, I, when we used to run the training on that scenario – is actually as the operator's at the door, we would flick the switch which isolates it. So the operator has to figure out, check a panel, check the illumination, check another controller. If there's no lights on, no lights on, you know, work back through the fault. Right, we have a winch freeze. Then you go through procedures with the pilot where he isolates and reselects and goes through those procedures. And normally that would then kick the uh, circuit breakers back in and you get power back. Mm. But because it had, it had short-circuited it, it, that wasn't working. But they kept going through that drill, and then all of a sudden it worked. So that was uh, – they, they did exactly what they were supposed to do. No panic, no yelling and screaming, just witch freeze, recycle mission selector it's called. Mm. And the pilot repeats it back, recycling mission selector. Still no power, recycle. So that's the drills and procedures and training – you have to have and maintain that if something does go drastically wrong, it's resolved the best way it can. That uh, that helps. <laughs> uh, I can't get my head around it, Dave. It is just it's so heroic. It, there's no words to describe it. Can you uh, um tell me were you 
frightened at any point out there? Like, do you get frightened? Anxious. I don't know about frightened because then I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. And so, yeah, of course, you've got to get anxious because of the, the, what you're going into. But you, because you're so focused on your task, you can't sort of let that cloud your judgment or your thinking. Um, you know, you are, you, you're concerned um, about what's going on rather than scared. Because if you were scared, you, you well, you wouldn't be there. Because that's not just the only rescue I've done. I've, I've done hundreds and hundreds. Some simple, some difficult, some very testing. Um, but I suppose that was yeah, one of the biggest, yeah. Well, put it this way. The two ambulance girls from Canberra on their helicopter, they went down to do a rescue and they both resigned when they got back to shore. Oh. Um, they just couldn't they just they're both married with children uh, and just said no no because um, they'd done all their training on Lake Burley Griffin luckily we do training also out in the surf out um, uh, the beach and I kept in contact with um, Peter Donaldson from Helimed uh, Peter Davidson sorry uh, Peter Davidson was the rescue crewman on that helicopter uh, he was a little bit af- uh, affected by it and so he moved to Queensland after um, after a little while because of the situation he found himself in. So he's doing exactly what I was doing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, I suppose different things affect different people in different ways. depends on what, what else has happened to them. Yes, true. Uh, so it's, it's all individual. It's not you can't put a sort of a, a big brush across a lot of it. Uh, Different things for yeah. Different things happen to different people to make them, uh, you know, what happens to them. Hence, why we have different responses to different situations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you you said that after the debriefing of the first rescue, that you all said yes to the rescue. Yes, that's correct. Why did you say yes? Because, from my point of view, um, it's uh, wasn't it a risk to each and every one of you, and this is forgetting the people in the water. This is to the three of you in the chopper. That's correct. We all have to look at our own task or our own position that we hold in that crew to say, can we do it? And the pilot was going, yep, we've got the, we've got the, I can do this, I can do this, yep, uh, we, can have, we can have a go. That's the biggest thing. We can have a, have a go at it. Um, yes, it was dangerous, but... Yes, and Barry said, as a winch operator, yep, I've, yep, I've, I'm no worries, I'm good to go. And then myself, by looking out the door and going, ah, it's a bit, a bit, a few waves, but from that height, it didn't look that bad, right? From where, where I was, where we were in the helicopter, it didn't look that bad. So, and I said yes. So we said right. Um, so we got got straight into it. Uh, but there are situations where I've been a crewman and a winch operator where I've said no and the other two have said yes. And there's other times where pilots have said no, this is too dangerous uh, because of, um, well, one example was uh, the wind shear up at Mount Buffalo, coming off the top of Mount Buffalo and we had to uh, uh, winch a body out, the person that jumped off the, uh, the cliff there. And it was, it was just too much and the pilot said, no, it's too dangerous. For us, because you know we'll get we'll crash into the trees, and and yet 
the two of us, the other two said, yes. He said, no, and went, that's it, we're out of here. Search and rescue, you've got a long walk. Uh, and as a winch um, operator, I uh, again, you, you're prepared to give it a go. You, you, as long as all your drills and procedures are fine, it's the environment that you're getting the people out of. It's never a nice sunny day. It's a flat, flat oval out the middle of um, <laughs> Elwood somewhere, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's always because someone's needs a rescuing. Now, this one was uh, two people in a tinny that were stranded on the mudflats off French Island, right? And from our water police, we can't get a boat into them because of the mud and um, it'll be 12 hours before the tide comes in. Can you go and pick them up? Said, yeah, no, no dramas. We've done lots of rescues in, in um, Western Port Bay. But when we got there, we had a look at it and because you always fly around, you do assessments, you reassess, and, of course, it's never what the original job was, things change. And I looked at it. Yes, it was quite a – would have been a quite simple winch, except the downdraft of the helicopter, as we picked the first person up, probably would have flipped that tinny over onto its roof, onto its – tipped it right over. So – and, of course, they're in soft mud. What would happen to the other person? Or we could even flip it over when they're both in it because of the rotor wash is incredible. And what happens if I miss the boat and dump the person in the mud? So they, they were stuck, but they weren't in dire straits. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Wait, wait for the tide to come in. <laughs> right? There, were, there was an alternative instead of doing, putting everybody at risk, us, not so much us, but them. So it's not just all about us doing a job. It's also if we're going to cause problems for the people being rescued. So, you know, th- these are all the things that you have to go through very quickly and um, make, a, make a decision on. And I said, no, no qualms, no problems, no hassles. Water police, yep, I can see you. Yep, wait for the tide to come in. They had a water police boat out in the um, channel and they were just watching them. And sure enough, tide came in and uh, the boat floated. So, But it was just too dangerous just by looking at it for them. Uh, so they're, they're. And I get that. But um, a 90-foot wave in a cyclone isn't too dangerous. That's what I don't get. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't think it was at the time. When I got into the water, I went, ah. Oh, Shit. <laughs> holy, no, the words are, oh, holy crap. <laughs> You know, I can't help but think also the situation you talked about when you thought you're going to have to dump the chopper and that Daryl was prepared to ditch the chopper and clearly die. Yeah. Well, there wasn't much else. There was no other no other option. That was the problem. God. You know, and I, I can't get it out of my head, the money side of things, when um, there's just so many to- uh, well there was the situation with the they didn't want it the police didn't want to buy you a, a boat to practice in but and I suppose what else do they do but when you're sleeping on a floor in a sleeping bag of a police station after what you had been through and I understand there was nowhere for you to stay but to me, I think after what you've been through, and then you're up at five thirty doing another one. Like, I just think, oh my god, 
good. How did you do it? Hey, can you tell us, uh, could you tell us about, um, I mean, as I said, there's so many questions that I want to ask, but I do think the public, uh, our listeners need to hear two more things from you about the Sydney to Hobart. One is about the beautiful response from John Campbell's family and the other one is about your awards for the Sydney to Hobart. And I think next week we'll do the, the the bushfires because this my head can't take anymore. Don't know about yours. Um, but can you tell us about that beautiful story about John Campbell? Okay, uh, the we finally found out that his name was John Campbell, the fellow that we'd rescued the first rescue out of the water, and the crew from the Kingara wanted to come out and thank us at the air wing. John Campbell had gone away for surgery and one of the fellows on board uh, was a doctor, Dr. Peter Meikle, whose father was a surgeon. So John got his face fixed and he came out to the air wing and I've got a lovely photo of us, the three of us and John Campbell standing in front. John bought us a book each and it was called The Perfect Storm. I don't know if you remember ever watching it. It was about a helicopter cruise uh, that died trying to rescue people up on um, one of the fishing banks off Canada. It's a true story, isn't it? And it was a – yeah, yes, yeah. It's it's called The Perfect Storm and they they crashed and all all died. Um, And it was in a a cyclone. So he bought us that and we finally met him and we had a good chat and things like that and – There's another sort of stories about that as well, but I'll keep going. We then were contacted by the United States Coast Guard uh, some months later and said, uh, you, uh, as the crew, have um, been awarded the Captain William J. Kostler US Coast Guard Award for the most meritorious helicopter rescue in the world that year. Uh, would you like to come over to Canada and receive it? And we went, oh, that'd be nice. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, that's a, an award from the US Coast Guard. And the reason for that is it's awarded for bravery to a helicopter crew because uh, William J. Kostler was a rescue crewman who drowned trying to do a rescue of someone in 1954. So it's awarded every year. So... We presented this uh, document to command. He said, no, we're not going to fly you over there. Um, Why did I know you say that? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we all all decided (laughs) as a crew with our wives, we'll pay for it ourselves. And we'll fly over to uh, Montreal um, to get the award because, you know, we deserved it as such. Absolutely. Um, and somehow the word got around that we were ha- having to pay for our airline tickets ourselves to get recognised uh, for this achievement. Uh, let's just say there was a bit of skullduggery going on in the background and all of a sudden, um, four o'clock that afternoon, um, our airfares were paid for by the department. So I can tell you privately about the skullduggery. <laughs> we won't worry about it at the moment. Anyway, so we flew over there and 
we told John Campbell that we were coming over and he said, oh, you must come and stay with us in Seattle uh, after you get your presentation. So we went over there, um, got up, and we had quite a few people from the – because the Channel 10 had already done a documentary on our rescues and the Coast Guard people there were saying, you Aussies, you're nuts, you're mad (laughs) Um, for for what you did. And I said, well – you know, same thing. That's your job. We said, and they went, oh, okay. And they understood it. So we um, got the award. We went over to Seattle, uh, landed, and John Campbell and his mum and dad and his brother came and met us at the airport. We went back, stayed at um, Barry had gone off. He had to go off somewhere else in Canada, but it was just uh, Vicky and myself and Daryl and Jenny staying at the house, and of course. They're bringing all their friends around so we could regale the story to them. Um, And we were having tea that night and, you know, we went and gave a talk at his Probus Club and and it was just just terrific, absolutely terrific. Beautiful. And uh, Wally, we're having tea that night and and Sally stands up and says, "Um, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the family, you you know, you two. Uh, We brought John into this world. You brought him back to us. You are our family. So that was that was incredible. So John's girlfriend was there, and she said he's not going sailing again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's married ma- married her, and he's got two kids. He had three goldfish <laughs> called Barry, Daryl, and David. I knew you'd say that. <laughs> uh, uh, so you know that that's just a bit of the bit of the fun, but uh, you know Wally and Sally were absolutely terrific. Um, They've got a and, lot to be thankful for, really, haven't they? Yeah. Because without you, well, they w- he would have died. Absolutely. Oh yeah, no, he was he was gone. He was. Uh, we could see that when he was in the water. And what saved him? And again, it's all this information that comes out afterwards. You know, just talking to people because. He was actually up on the helm of um, Kingara and the others were downstairs. And when the boat flipped, um, he hit the – he got thrown off, hit the compass first and got thrown into the water and he was attached to the safety line. But when they grabbed him to try and drag him on board, uh, he slipped out of his harness because he didn't have the, – the leg straps weren't done up. So they just pulled the harness and his coat, his jacket, straight over his shoulders. And uh, because he was semi-conscious and wasn't struggling, that's what's probably saved him because he wasn't exerting a lot of energy. But by the time we had the job and got out there, which wasn't that long, he'd probably been in the water for about half an hour by the time he was rescued. So he was he was really um, just battered around, completely battered around. So that's what's that's probably helped. Otherwise, he just would have drowned. So but that, that was very good of his. And we've been back to the States a couple of times and visited the family. John and Lucy's wife came out when we got our uh, Valor Award, Police Valor Award at the Academy. Um, and his parents have been out. So there's a bit of a bond there between a lot of us. Oh, yeah. Um, for sure. So because he, he knew he was gone and basically his parents didn't have a clue because they weren't notified for quite some time. So that's, that's that. So, oh. and, and can you tell us, um, just in closing, um, 
Could you tell us about the awards? You just um, mentioned, <laughs> happened to mention in passing then, but there's a <laughs> number of awards. Could you tell us about the awards you and the Air Wing received? Yes. Um, I received the um, individual uh, Australian Bravery Medal uh, from the Commonwealth Government. Uh, uh, the crew received the Victoria Police Varel Award, which, as you know, is the highest award for bravery in the, the police. And as a crew, we received the Royal Life Saving Society Bravery Cross, which is their highest medal uh, awarded for bravery. And then we also got the um, group citation for bravery uh, for that. So enough to keep us out of mischief. Yes, gee. Well, look, Dave, I think what we'll do is that is just so incredible. Uh, I think what we'll do is we'll have another recording in relation to Black Saturday, but could you just give the listeners just a little bit of a uh, intro into your um, involvement in the Black Saturday bushfires and we'll um, come back and record that sometime this week? Yes, not a problem. Um, well, on that Saturday in 2009, uh, again, I was uh, on crew and that day I was again the rescue crewman because you we're cross-trained as in winch operator, winch crewman, and you just take it in turns to um, do the different jobs. And our pilot that day was uh, Warwick Young and Brian Norman was the, uh, the winch operator and I was the rescue crewman. And that day it was 46 degrees. And that's when the fire started up at uh, Wandong or Kilmore East. So as we came on duty, that that stage they were sweeping through uh, down towards Whittlesey across Mount Disappointment. And Channel 9 was already up there filming it and we were just assisting the ground crews. And Channel 9 helicopter called us and said, uh, can you come and try and rescue some people that are trapped in a house on Coombs Road? So we said, Sure enough. Uh, so when we flew over there, there were four people, uh, a dog, and three horses sort of trapped in this property. The fire was on three sides and uh, coming up the fourth side, which means they just would have been completely swallowed by the fire because it was huge. It was sweeping up Coombs Road and then uh, down the other side. Well, Brian Naylor lived about 300 metres up the road, yes. the newsreader. Yes. And he's the one that perished, and he and his wife perished in the fire as well. Yeah. And, of course, uh, we got there. We um, did our briefings and risk assessments, and Channel 9 filmed all this uh, as well. So I've actually got a copy of the, the film. And the fire was getting very, very close to the house at this stage. Uh, so I got winched down. I thought, well, at least we can rescue a couple of people, try anyway to rescue a couple of people. So I went down, uh, got the first lady in, which was Juliet, and uh, she said, I'm not leaving without my dog. So we got the dog and put him between us. That was Poncho. And we tried to do the rescue. We couldn't because the helicopter was starting to sink because it was running out of air to make it stay afloat or stay in the air. So I had to uh, disconnect. So I was down there with these four people. And I think what we might do is leave it there because I don't want I don't want you to um, uh, tell the whole story because <laughs> that whole story uh, would t- will be another you know great 60, 70 minutes, whatever. Um, but 
needless to say, your role in that on that day was also uh, heroic on on so many levels. I'm just thinking to myself, you know, you're what. Pardon me, I'm going to swear here, but you're what many would call a shit magnet. I was like that in the job. Where if ever there was a shit job, oh, that's a terrible way to put it. But if ever there was a job, oh, yeah. I don't know. Just I was always there, and it sounds like the tea bag was always there when it was just, you know, the worst possible job, Uh, you know, very, very stressful. So I think we might just leave it there and uh, you can, you know, tell that story because that in itself is incredible. Thank you so much, Dave. What you have shared with us today, I don't think I've ever, ever heard a story like that and I hope I never will you know in lots of ways but thank you on everyone's behalf for what uh, you did Uh, incredible so thanks Dave and we'll look forward to hearing about Black Saturday good no no problems at all Laurel hey it's Narelle here again Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review, and please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.